I'm so thankful that you all just got your Bibles on your laps and your notebooks all set. Turn with me to 1 Timothy chapter 6. And now that you're all settled in, would you stand with me? This is one of the most glorious descriptions of God in all the Bible. And when God enters the room, we stand. 1 Timothy 6, verse 13. We'll read through verse 16 is our text this morning. 1 Timothy 6, verse 13, Paul speaking to Timothy. I charge you in the presence of God, who gives life to all things, and of Christ Jesus, who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach, until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which He will display at the proper time. He who is the blessed and the only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see, to Him be honor and eternal dominion. And Grace Bible Church said, Amen. You may be seated. I was perusing the website of a Bible church, really in name only, that you would likely be familiar with. And I I like to do this on occasion, mostly to try to be encouraged that churches are being faithful. And unfortunately, that wasn't the case here. It It really encapsulated my concern that more and more in the church of Jesus Christ, the Bible is being edited, it's being managed, it's being handled, kind of like you would handle the uncomfortable and awkward cousin at a family reunion. He kind of has to be there, but we don't want him to be too prominent. And yet the name of this particular church has in its name a Bible church. The website was full of slogans and catchphrases, but it took me quite a while to find anything vaguely resembling content and depth of truth of God's Word. Now, this is just part of a common strategy that we used to call the seeker-sensitive movement. We don't really call it that anymore. It's just American evangelicalism now. That's the primary culture. That is an effort to slowly distance people from the Bible. And the thought is that you, you start people off at a long distance from the Bible, so that you can slowly work them toward encountering the truth. This particular church has as its mission, quote, get your life centered on Jesus. And that sounds wonderful on the surface, but it doesn't even vaguely resemble the biblical gospel at all, of repentance and regeneration and justification and obedience. I couldn't even find anywhere anywhere in the information what it means to get your life centered on Jesus. But if the Bible is the inspired word of God, God breathed, if 2 Timothy 3.16 is true, which says that all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, then there is a logical outworking of inspiration, and that is authority. And in fact, total and final authority. The Bible is not an authority for the believer. The Bible is the authority, the sole authority. In fact, it's the only spiritual authority available to all of mankind. It's the only one. 
Jesus certainly viewed the scriptures as authoritative. Jesus said in John 10, 35, that the scripture cannot be broken. He said in Mark eleven seventeen that scripture was his authority for cleansing the temple. In Matthew 15, 3 and 4, he claimed scripture as, a, as his authority for completely trashing the tradition of the Pharisees. In Matthew twenty two twenty nine, he claimed scripture as his authority for settling any and all doctrinal disputes. And how did Jesus resist Satan in the temptation at, in Matthew 4? He said, it is written, it is written, it is written. Jesus said in Luke 16, 17, it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law to become void. The scriptures are unbreakable. They come from God. And the Bible has the authority of God himself bestowed upon it. I think that's quite a contrast from what we might call the churchianity attempt to slowly ease people into the word of God. Now, as we've been walking through our text here in 1 Timothy 4, 5, and 6, we've been doing a little series we're calling Well Done, Good and Faithful Church. We're trying to be spiritually prepared for our move to the new facility. I believe you can now count the Sundays on one hand, if I'm doing my math right. We've been listing the things that characterize a faithful church. Priorities that the faithful church focuses upon. And so far we've looked at striving for excellence, understanding the gospel, leading by example, focusing the leadership, sanctifying the individuals, helping the vulnerable, discipling the women, evaluating the leaders, honoring the name of God, guarding the flock, exhorting to contentment, fighting the good fight. And today I'd like to talk about preaching the word. Preaching the word. And you might say, but this is a Bible church. We don't need to talk about preaching the word. Well, I just gave you an example of a Bible church that doesn't talk about preaching the word and they've quit. They've stopped doing it. Unlike the aforementioned church, which seems to be trying to to camouflage the word of God. In our text that we read this morning, the apostle Paul is doing the opposite. He's elevating the word of God. He's focusing this on the word of God to such a level that his charge to Timothy takes Timothy literally to the blinding center of the glory of God himself. After having now exhorted Timothy to continue confronting and setting himself apart from the false teachers that had infiltrated the church at Ephesus where Timothy had been sent, teachers who did not rely upon the sole authority of the scripture, now Paul symbolically summons Timothy to the very throne room of heaven to appear before God the Father and before God the Son. It is a daunting and an intimidating and an awe-inspiring scene. It's as if Paul says to Timothy, before I tell you what I'm about to tell you, you and I are going to stand together before God when you listen to this. And Paul focuses Timothy on the word of God, the proclaimed word of God. And as we've noted before, these admonitions here in 1 Timothy, they're not just for preachers. This is the church's commitment. It has to be the church's commitment. If church members were more committed to the preached word of God, they would either confront the leadership of churches like the one I just mentioned, or they would and should empty those buildings because it's a fruitless endeavor. It's harmful. It's deceptive. The commitment to the preached word of God in all its glory is not just the commitment of the preacher. It's the commitment of the church. The support of the preached word, the listening to the preached word, the application of the preached word. And it is a team effort. 
And many of you are very gracious and kind and you, you thank me. You say thank you for preaching. But I have to thank you. If you weren't here, there'd be no way to preach to. It's a team effort. And the members of a local church must accept that this is God's will. They must insist that their shepherds feed them the good word of God. And then the members ought to obey the word. What I'd like to do this morning is based on our text, I'd like to kind of construct a theological paradigm, a theological statement about the proclaimed word of God. And we'll add some phrases to this sentence as we go. And so we're going to build this together. Our theological paradigm or our theological statement begins with the simple phrase, the proclaimed word of God is. The proclaimed word of God is. And then the first little phrase we'll add to that. The proclaimed word of God is the highest priority. It is the highest priority. And we'll keep adding to that sentence. The proclaimed word of God is the highest priority. Paul tells Timothy, verse 13, I charge you, verse 14, to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach. Everything in between is qualitative and it, it, it qualifies this statement. So we'll start here with the basic skeletal sentence structure. I charge you to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach. Now, someone might ask, what is this commandment? There's no reference to a specific commandment here. This is to be understood in the biggest sense of the entire revelation of all of the word of God. And Timothy is charged to preach this word, to keep it. Timothy is to emulate Paul. Paul told the Ephesian elders several years prior to this in Acts 20, verse 20, I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable. And in verse 27, I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. In other words, nothing was off limits. In the similar sounding charge to Timothy, the one you're probably more familiar with, in the second letter, Paul insists on this standard. He says in 2 Timothy 4, 1 and 2, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. What does that mean? When it's popular and when it's not. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. Patience doesn't have to do with demeanor. It has to do with repetitiveness. Now, interestingly here in our text... Many focus on Timothy himself, that he is to be unstained, that he is to be free from reproach. And obviously from other texts, we would agree with that, that Timothy needed to watch his own life. He needed to be a worthy and qualified leader. We've seen this earlier in 1 Timothy. But the text here is very clear. It doesn't say that Timothy is to keep himself unstained and free from reproach. He's to keep the word of God unstained and free from reproach. What does this mean? It means protecting the word of God. There is a repeated theme by Paul to Timothy of guarding the truth. In 1 Timothy 1.19, Paul tells Timothy to hold the faith. In 1 Timothy 4.6, put the words of faith and sound doctrine before the church in preaching in front of you. That's what the content is of, of what we preach. 1 Timothy 4.16, Paul tells Timothy to keep a close watch on the teaching, to be careful and I can relate to this when I study each and every week and, and all of our shepherds who teach uh, weekly, there are little nuances in scripture that we wrestle with, that we sweat bullets over because we're to watch the teaching. We don't just roll the dice and say, well, if it's even, I'll go with this view. If it's odd, I'll go with that one. 
1 Timothy 6.20, we'll see in a week or so, guard the deposit of truth entrusted to you. 2 Timothy 1.14, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. In 2 Timothy 2.15, rightly handle the word of truth. Now, it's been asked, why does Timothy need any more motivation? That seems like it's all Paul's been doing. Why is Paul, at the very end of this book, hauling Timothy, as it were, before the very counsel of God himself, before God the Father, God the Son, to remind him that the proclaimed word of God is the highest priority. Well, you have to recall Timothy's situation. He was a hired gun, so to speak, sent by Paul to confront opposition to the truth by false teachers in the church. Not an enviable job. There were bad elders, and he had to deal with the resulting sinfulness in the church. Because when you have bad leadership, you end up with disobedient members. Paul was making certain then that Timothy's resolve remained steadfast, especially since Timothy was fairly young and wasn't taken seriously at times. I think about this. Jesus sent a letter to the church at Sardis in Revelation 3. And you don't have to turn there, but just listen to the first part of this letter. It's daunting. Jesus says, And to the angel of the church in Sardis write, The words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up! And strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you have received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief. And you will not know at what hour I will come against you. This is with the church. What is the church at Sardis? The church at Sardis is the so-called successful American evangelical church. It's exactly that. The church that says, we'll tell you about Jesus, but we'll de-emphasize uncomfortable topics like sin and repentance. It's the church that says, we'll make sure our community knows what a hip and postmodern group of people we are. That youth is better. We'll emphasize that it really takes human effort that you should rely upon. We'll name ourselves things, things like discovery or elevation to make certain that you get all the credit for the things you discover. We'll have the snazziest programs for children to make sure your little reprobates know that Jesus is not actually mad at them at all about their sin. And we'll be their best friends with no reference to sin or salvation. We'll fool them for 18 years into thinking that because they're here, they're okay. We'll make sure the music fits your latest taste and preferences. In fact, we'll try to make church more like going to a concert or a production because your entertainment value is important to us. We'll make certain our pastors wear only the latest in fashions and and we'll attempt to maintain a perpetually youthful look because that's what will transform your life. We'll pick and choose from some heretical charismatic theology just to make certain you know that the purpose of the Holy Spirit is to give you good feelings and a mystical experience, especially when the band plays louder and changes keys and starts jumping up and down on the stage having facial expressions that resemble staring at the sun. That's going to change your life. But Jesus said they were dead. It was a show. It was a sham. We often emphasize in that text that Jesus is excoriating the church. But my exegesis of that passage leads me to an uncomfortable conclusion. 
Who is he speaking to first? The angel of the church in Sardis. This is speaking of the human leader, the pastor, the preacher. It's a Greek word that just means messenger and often is used of human beings. The preacher needed to preach and the people needed to listen because the church was in trouble. They needed to stop messing around with a look, stop messing around with a feel, stop messing around with a reputation, with trying to be impressive. And instead, they needed to open their Bibles and digest the Word of God and obey the Word of God and submit to the Word of God and relish the Word of God and marvel at the Word of God and tremble at the Word of God and how about this, weep at the Word of God. That's what they needed to do. Why? Because the proclaimed Word of God is the highest priority. We'll keep building our statement, our paradigm. The proclaimed Word of God is the highest priority And we'll add this phrase to it, in front of the highest witnesses. In front of the highest witnesses. The proclaimed word of God is the highest priority in front of the highest witnesses. In Paul's words here, Timothy finds himself face to face with God the Father and God the Son. Verse 13, I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things. And of Christ Jesus, who made his testimony before Pontius Pilate, in his testimony rather, before Pontius Pilate, made the good confession. There's two witnesses here. The first witness, the life-giving God the Father. The life-giving God the Father. We see this in the presence of God who gives life to all things. How is it that God gives life to all things? There's several ways. God is the source of all life, first of all. Ezekiel, or Ecclesiastes rather, 12 verse 1 tells you, remember your creator. He's your creator. He's the source of all life. God is the sustainer of all life. Nehemiah 9 verse 6 says that God preserves all of life. That if life is alive, it's God doing it. Not only is he the source of all life, the sustainer of all life, he's the redeemer of life from death. He's the Redeemer. Psalm 49, 15, But God will ransom my soul from the power of Sheol, the grave, for He will receive me. Only God can do that. Paul is telling Timothy, Before God, the Creator, the Sustainer, the Redeemer of life. What's he saying? Timothy, God will protect you until His purposes for you are done. So be courageous, stand up, do the right thing, Preach the word. Don't worry about what anybody thinks. Just do it. Timothy was to have courage to stand alone if necessary. There's a second witness we'll call the confessing God the Son. The confessing God the Son and of Christ Jesus who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession. What is the good confession? The most likely candidate is the statement that Jesus made to Pontius Pilate as recorded in John 18. You don't have to turn there. I'll just read it to you. And this is a stunning statement during this trial. Jesus said in John 18, 36, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. Then Pilate said to him, So you are a king? Jesus answered, You say I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Now, why is that the good confession? Because that is a confession that would cost Jesus his life. He never wavered in the face of death and he committed himself fully to his father. 
And so Paul gives Timothy this charge in front of the grand and glorious witnesses of, of God the Father, who is the giver and sustainer and redeemer of life, and before Jesus Christ, who never wavered in the face of death and made the good confession. He taught what was true, despite the consequences. Now, why are these witnesses important? These are heavenly witnesses. These are divine witnesses. When a leader in an entire church goes off track, what's actually happening? It's when the witnesses they're trying to please are no longer divine witnesses, but people. Now they're off track. Both here and in Paul, in Paul's charge to Timothy in 2 Timothy 4 to preach the word, the witnesses before whom the charge is made is God the Father and God the Son. Paul doesn't tell Timothy. He does not say, I charge you in the presence of shallow, unsaved people disinterested in the gospel, modify the word. He doesn't say, I charge you in the presence of church members who think your job is to keep them happy. Offend not with the word. He doesn't say, I charge you in the presence of cultural Christians who have no attention span whatsoever for truth. Entertain them with the word. He doesn't say, I charge you in the presence of professing believers who love the culture more than me. Wrap the word. No, he says, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, preach the word. And if I could add the Steve Swartz footnote and let the chips fall. Whatever happens, happens. But the preacher isn't the only one who gets the charge. The church, the church gets a charge as well. James 1, 19 through 22, I would say in the top 10 list of New Testament passages taken out of context, says this. Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness. Oh, the context is the preached word of God. Receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. But be doers of the word, not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. In other words, listen carefully, learn before you speak, stop getting angry when you disagree with the word of God, and instead pursue righteousness through the word, be meek, and be doers. That's the charge to the church. Why? Because of the witnesses of God the Father and God the Son. You realize that God the Father, God the Son, and, and, the, and the, within your own soul, God the Spirit, are watching you every time you're taking in the word of God. Those are powerful witnesses. The proclaimed word of God is the highest priority in front of the highest witnesses. And we'll add to this statement, the proclaimed word of God is the highest priority in front of the highest witnesses with the highest commitment. With the highest commitment. How long was Timothy to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach? Verse 14 until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's sort of a statement that says, don't ever quit. Once again, this is a Godward focus. This isn't a personal satisfaction focus. Very frequently in his writings, Paul speaks of maintaining integrity and blamelessness, of staying the course, of pointing yourself all the way forward to the return of Christ. For example, to the Philippian church, he expressed in his prayer in Philippians 2, 15 and 16, that you may be blameless and innocent children of God 
without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. What's Paul telling Timothy here? And by extension, the church. He's telling them, be permanently faithful, either to death or until the Savior returns. Those are your two options. Remember, in God's economy, once Christ ascended into heaven, his coming is now always considered to be soon. Always. Jesus said in Revelation twenty-two twelve. Uh, almost about 2,000 years ago, he said this, Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to pay, repay each one for what he's done. I think a common question that people have been asking for ages and ages, but when is Jesus coming? When is Jesus coming? The answer is found in Scripture. In fact, it's right here in our text. It's right here in verse 15. Here's when Jesus is coming. Which... That is the coming of Christ. He, God the Father, will display at the proper time. When is Jesus coming? When will he take the church in rapture? 1 Thessalonians 4, John 14, 1 Corinthians 15, and return seven years later. When? When God the Father says so. And not one second sooner or later. And so what's our duty? Live as if his coming is soon. What a disservice it would be to us if we thought the coming of Christ was in 500 years. Isn't it great to think it might be in five minutes? What if this is the last sermon you're ever listening to? If you're over the age of two and you're falling asleep, I don't know what the Lord's going to say about that. Really, was my Bible so boring that you couldn't listen for a moment? No, it's great. Our Heavenly Father, we're like children. They're told to clean our room. And, and Dad, as he's closing the door, telling you to clean your room, says, I'll be back. When? Not telling you, oh, I better clean my room. <laughs> I think it pains us to think about how many Christians will lose reward in heaven because they didn't take God's admonition to take the life of the church, the faithfulness of the church, the gospel, the word-centered nature of the church seriously. And just to illustrate this, there are some good reasons to leave a church. Unfaithful leadership that is strayed from orthodoxy, from sound doctrine, you have to go. Immoral leadership that won't confront sin among itself, you have to go. When the church loses its focus on Christ, the word and the gospel, and becomes political or woke or obsessed with social justice, you have to go. But statistically, you know what the top reasons are that people leave a church? Number one, others in the church annoy them. Number two, they don't get their way. Number three, they're obsessed with worship style instead of content and truth. Number four, a trendy church just opened nearby that has a coffee shop and a pastor with a nose ring. That that's going to make everything better. <laughs> and the fifth of the top reasons, they stopped working at respecting their leadership and eventually couldn't submit to them anymore. Those and other similarly self-focused reasons all revolve around what becomes the truly most important person in the universe, me. Jesus told the church at Smyrna in Revelation 2 that they were about to endure great suffering for the sake of the gospel. What did he tell them to do? Suffering is coming. It's on its way. Did Jesus say, you know, I hear that South 
France is a great place to live. The weather's great. The ocean's beautiful. Terrific place to raise your kids. No. He said, be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. Now, I have a question for you. Why didn't they just leave? Why didn't they just go? They didn't have moving vans, but they could leave. They didn't leave because Jesus called them to be faithful, to stay, and they were. Jesus called them to look to eternity, not to avoid suffering in this life. We're committed to the proclamation of the word until the appearing of the Lord Jesus Christ. I love our church. I love this ministry. Sometimes people forget that pastors are missionaries. We, we go where the Lord calls us. You know, when I told men that I know well that I'm going to Bakersfield, a man I respect very much said something very spiritual. He said, why would you go to the armpit of the world? Because this is where God called me. And this is where people need to hear the gospel, right? Our theological statement, the proclaimed word of God is the highest priority in front of the highest witnesses with the highest commitment. And finally, to the glory of God in the highest. To the glory of God in the highest. The proclaimed word of God is the highest priority in front of the highest witnesses with the highest commitment to the glory of God in the highest. The multitude of angels appeared to the shepherds the night that Jesus was born. And they cried out in Luke 2.14, Glory to God in the highest, meaning that He is above all, that He is transcendent. And here, Paul gives one of the most awe-inspiring and compact doxologies, an exclamation of the glory of God in all of Scripture. What's the motivation to stay true to the proclaimed Word of God? By my count, he gives about seven of them. That first, God is the blessed one or the blessed one. Now, from here on out, we should note that Paul is speaking of God the Father specifically from this point forward. When the term blessed or blessed is used in reference to God, it describes the fact that he is totally happy. There's a, a lack of any frustration of any kind. God has no anxiety. God has never been anxious. God has never been worried. God has never been nervous. He's always content in himself. He's always perfectly satisfied in himself. He's at perfect peace. He's totally fulfilled in a constant state of ecstatic joy. Now, it's true that some things are pleasing to God and other things are not pleasing to God, but no circumstance can alter his perfect peace. He's above it. He's transcendent. Since he controls everything and knows the planned outcome of everything, everything that happens is within his will and gives him unending delight. He is blessed. God is the only sovereign. He's the only sovereign. Now, sovereign here literally means ruler. And it speaks of the all-powerful nature of God's rule. His power to rule is intrinsic. He didn't earn it. He didn't grab a hold of it. He didn't work his way up to it. He has no rivals. Nothing is a threat to him whatsoever. And he said, well, what about Satan? Yeah, Satan's a rival, but he never stood a chance for one second. And Satan was all part of God's plan in the first place. And Satan's already been sentenced to hell. There are other rulers on earth, but all of them have delegated authority. Only God is actually truly and fundamentally sovereign within himself. 
There's absolutely no one to compete with him for control of the universe. None at all. Isaiah 43, 13 says, Henceforth I am he. There is none who can deliver from my hand. I work and who can turn it back? In other words, if God is against you, who are you going to go to? By the way, this means that there's only one who can save you from the rightful wrath of God against your sin. The only one who can save you from God is God. God the Father sent God the Son to save you from the fury of righteous eternal judgment being poured out on you. You can only turn to God to save you from God. There is no other rescuer. We also see that not only is he the blessed and only sovereign, he is the king of kings and the Lord of lords. In our age, we're more familiar with that designation speaking of the Son of God, Revelation 17, Revelation 19. But this is the intrinsic character of God. He is the king of all the kings and the Lord of all the lords. Now you might think that feels a little bit repetitive. It feels like saying the same thing over again. But there's an interesting aspect of this that I think some other scriptures help draw out. It's a very long title of God. It's used elsewhere, but with a variation. And it helps us understand what the king of all the kings and Lord of all the lords means. In Deuteronomy 10:17, for example... For Yahweh your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great mighty and the awesome God. Daniel 2.47, the king answered and said to Daniel, Truly your God is God of gods and Lord of kings. What does this tell us? Well, the spirit realm has abiding in it fallen angels who are mighty and powerful. Romans 8.38 calls them rulers. Daniel 10 calls, uh, refers to the prince of Persia, a demon ruler who's behind uh, the wicked pagan kings. And so there's a basis to say, listen carefully, that when Scripture calls God the king of all the kings, he is referring at least in part to the fact that he has dominion over all of the spirit realm. And when he is the Lord of all the lords, he has dominion over the realm of humanity. That over every being... God is king and Lord over all of them. We see also that God alone has immortality. God alone has immortality. This is a very specific word that speaks of the deathlessness of God. He is deathless. That God cannot be annihilated. He can't be made to go out of existence. It speaks of his self-existence. Just to give you a comparison, we exist because of God. God exists because he is God. Big difference. Psalm 36, 9, the psalmist says, For with you is the fountain of life, that life emanates from him. Life flows from God. He doesn't just give life. He doesn't just experience life. He is life. He's above everything. He's above history. He's beyond time. He alone is immortal. Paul continues to describe God as one who dwells in unapproachable light. That God is transcendent, that he is beyond, that he is unlimited. He's unapproachable metaphysically. How do you get to God? There is no way to get to him unless he allows you to. You you can't find him, you can't see him, you can't know him unless he allows. He's unapproachable metaphysically, he's also unapproachable morally. 
He's unapproachable morally in that you can't compare yourself to God. You have nothing with which to honor God or impress God. You can't add value to God. You have nothing to give to Him. You can't say, look how good I've been compared to what? The perfect blinding holiness of God? You're wicked. The people of Israel saw the unapproachable light of God. Exodus 24, beginning in verse 15, Moses went up on the mountain and the cloud covered the mountain. The glory of the Lord dwelt on Mount Sinai and the cloud covered it six days. And on the seventh day, he called to Moses out of the midst of the cloud. Now the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire on the top of the mountain in the sight of the people of Israel. He's unapproachable. Paul goes on to say that he is the one whom no one has ever seen or can see. God is an invisible God. He possesses infinite holiness, infinite separateness, which makes it impossible to perceive him unless he grants it. Now, yes, Jesus said in Matthew 5, 8, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. But the idea there is not of putting your eyes on God. It's of knowing him, being in relationship to him. And, and yes, seeing his manifested glory. But whatever glory you may see is a manifestation. It is not the essence of God himself. Moses requested to see the glory of God. God's answer was very gracious. In Exodus thirty-three seventeen. the Lord said to Moses, this very thing that you have spoken, I will do, for you have found favor in my sight. It's a Hebrew word that means grace in my sight. I know you by name. And Moses said, please show me your glory. Now, this is very interesting. Because Moses, arguably, had seen more of the glory of God than any human being who has ever lived before or since. And yet he said, show me your glory. And so God said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, Yahweh, and I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious He said, you cannot see my face for man cannot see me and live. And he gives instruction. He said to Moses, there's a place in the rock where you can stand a little cleft in the rock and I'll cover you until I've passed by. And how did God manifest his glory? Why is it that Moses, who had seen the manifestation of the glory of God more than any human being who's ever lived, why would he say, please show me your glory? Well, what God did answers that question. How did God manifest his glory in the most ultimate sense? You ready for this? With words. With words, with knowledge, with truth. Exodus 34, beginning in verse 6, The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, Yahweh, Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. Do you realize that's a title? That's a long title. And what happened with Moses? He quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshiped. He saw the glory of God in the word of God. Why do we proclaim the word of God? Why is that the highest priority? Because it is that which manifests his glory. And Paul finishes up with, to him be honor and eternal dominion. To him be honor and eternal dominion. This functions almost like the then part of an if-then statement. 
that if God is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see, then to him belongs honor and dominion. You see, Timothy and the church and you and me are to keep the commandments unstained and free from reproach because this is to the glory of God. This is the God we serve, the one who has the right to all honor, the one who has the right to all dominion. I don't know if you're aware of this, but Scripture fairly bathes us in the dominion of God, the right to God to be honored, the uniqueness of God, the sovereign uniqueness of God. We might think about Deuteronomy 4.35, to you it was shown that you might know that the Lord is God. There is no other besides Him. Five verses later in verse 39, Know therefore today and lay it to your heart that the Lord is God in heaven above and the earth beneath. There is no other. Deuteronomy 32.39, See now that I, even I am He. There is no God beside me. I kill and I make alive. I wound and I heal. And there is none that can deliver out of my hand. We could think about 1 Samuel 2, 2. There is none holy like Yahweh. There is none besides you. There is no rock like our God. In 2 Samuel 7, 22, Therefore you are great, O Lord God. There is none like you. There is no God besides you, according to all that we have heard with our ears. In 2 Samuel twenty two thirty two, For who is God but the Lord? And who is a rock except our God? The stunning statement in 1 Kings 8, 23, O Lord God of Israel, there is no God like you in heaven above or on earth beneath, keeping covenant and showing steadfast love to your servants who walk before you with all their heart. The 1 Kings 8, 60, that all the peoples of the earth may know that Yahweh is God, there is no other. In 2 Kings 19, we get the record of Hezekiah's prayer. He said, O Lord, the God of Israel enthroned above the cherubim, you are the God, you alone of all the kingdoms of the earth. You have made heaven and earth. In 2 Kings 19, 19, So now, O Lord, our God, save us, please, from his hand, that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you, O Yahweh, are God alone. In 2 Chronicles 6, 14, Yahweh, God of Israel, there is no God like you. Nehemiah 9, 6, You are the Lord, you alone. You made heaven, the heaven of heavens, with all their host, the earth that is all, and all that is on it the seas and all that is in them, and you preserve all of them. The host of all of heaven worships you. Psalm 18, 31, For who is God but the Lord? Who is a rock except our God? Psalm 86, 10, For you are great and do wondrous things. You alone are God. Isaiah 37, 16, You are the God, you alone of all the kingdoms of the earth. Isaiah 37, 20, You alone are the Lord. Isaiah 43, 10, no God before me was formed, neither shall there be any after me. Isaiah 44, 6, I am the first and the last. Besides me, there is no God. Isaiah 44, 8, fear not, nor be afraid, for I have not told you of old and declared it, and you are my witnesses. Is there a God besides me? There is no rock. I don't know of any. Psalm, or Isaiah 45, 5, I am the Lord. There is no other besides me. There is no God. Isaiah 45, 21, 22, Turn to me and be saved all the ends of the earth, for I am God, there is no other. Isaiah 46, 9, Remember the former things of old, for I am God, there is no other. I am God, there is none like me. The declaration of 
of a pagan king, Nebuchadnezzar, in Daniel 4.34, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven, and I blessed the Most High, and praised and honored Him who lives forever, for His dominion is an everlasting dominion, and His kingdom endures from generation to generation. Or we think about Joel 2.27, You shall know that I am in the midst of Israel, that I am the Lord your God, and there is none else. But sure, even with all that, Let's in the church try to be man-centered and attract people to us with our strategy. We ought not, we cannot, and we must not do anything other than keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. The proclaimed word of God is the highest priority in front of the highest witnesses with the highest commitment to the glory of God in the highest. Now, what does this mean for you? I'd like to use a wedding as an illustration. I get the privilege of being briefly with the bride and her bridesmaids a few minutes before a wedding and then I have the privilege of being with the groom and his groomsmen before a wedding. And you know, it's interesting to me. I've done a lot of weddings. And no matter the personality of the man, whether he's kind of a serious and dark personality or whether he's kind of uh, just a, a light and fun-loving personality, it all turns out the same right before the wedding. When I'm with that man, there are some moments of pondering the heaviness of what's about to occur. There's a seriousness, there's a weightiness, there's a gravitas to what's about to happen. The import is beginning to sink in. What do you do to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ? What do you do? Before you gather with God's people to hear the word of God, Let that level of weightiness, that level of preparation sink in. Prepare your heart to see the glory of God. How is it that you're going to see the glory of God in the church? When somebody says, open your Bibles. And the glory of God will shine forth. So you prepare your heart. I would urge you, men, prepare your families the night before. And pray with them. And begin to focus your heart, your mind, your affection, your alarm clocks, your sleeping patterns on the open word of God. Somebody asked me recently, we comment often that our prayer for Grace Bible Church is to be faithful until Christ returns. And somebody asked me, where'd you get that idea? I didn't get that idea. It's the command. It is the command. It's not a prayer request. It's God's command to the church. You be faithful until Christ returns. And it takes you for that to happen. I didn't warn you this was coming, but I want to ask you to stand with me one more time. Stand with me one more time. 1 Timothy 6, 13 through 16. I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ which he will display at the proper time. 
He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see, to Him be honor and eternal dominion. We'll say it together. Amen. Let's pray. You may remain standing. We'll sing and pray as well. Our Father, we come to You now, blown away by truth, blown away by the God that we serve that we stand before God the Father and God the Son by means of the Spirit. And when we open our Bibles, it is a weighty and a heavy thing and a glorious and a mighty and a fearful thing. It is that which makes us joyful. It is that which makes us tremble. And so, our God, may we be faithful. We beg you and we ask you that when Christ appears, this little church in what somebody called the armpit of the world would be a shining example of faithfulness. We pray that this would give honor and glory to our Savior, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray, amen.